If you have a Bible with you this morning, or maybe you want to reach uh, for the copy that's there in the chairs, uh, turn with me to the book of Haggai. The book of Haggai. It's one of those smaller books of the prophets. In the copies on the chairs, you'll find it on page 791. 791. You'll see Zephaniah and then uh, Zechariah, Malachi. You'll find Haggai there right after the book Zephaniah. Page 791. Chairs. Reading chapter 1. Uh, of this, uh, this word of the prophet, this servant of the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, here with the people of God, uh, chapter 1, the book of Haggai. Indeed, uh, may the Lord minister by his Holy Spirit as we have the word of God read to us. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your you have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, it, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busy himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land, and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on which, brings forth, uh, on which the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors." Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the second year of Darius the king. And thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to be with us in his word. Let's pray together. <coughs> oh, Holy Spirit, we thank you that you've given us these words, the word of truth, the word for our sanctification to build us up. O oh, our God, Father, Son, and Spirit, dwell with us, your people. We pray especially, Lord, that you would illumine our hearts and minds. And we pray that uh, this matter of 
this occasion and circumstance here in Haggai 1 uh, would come home to our hearts and teach us lessons, Lord. Direct our steps for your glory and honor. Open our eyes that we might see wonderful things from your word. We pray especially that the Lord Jesus Christ, he himself, would minister to us. And we pray in his name. Amen. Our family travel quite often uh, back up in the state of Maryland when I was there serving one of our congregations for a number of years. On that particular road that we would travel quite often, I one day counted there were cemeteries uh, traveling that road between home and church. Yes, the cemeteries caught my attention. Now, maybe it's likely something that we wouldn't ordinarily do, but maybe you have perhaps taken a walk or you've lingered a little bit longer in a cemetery, and you make a few observations. See those headstones there, and you'll see the different sayings that are there upon those headstones or those tombstones, the epitaphs that we'll read, those sayings, those memorial words about that person now deceased there. Uh, memories, special words that uh, we treasure, the family would treasure, loved ones would treasure there on a tombstone. Uh, here, are, here are a couple. Uh, here's one that I remember seeing back, back up in my home area up in Alaska. Here's one off of a tombstone. The hunter has gone home. That's, that's, that's fitting for Alaska. The hunter has gone home. Here's one. Christian, wife, mother. She simply served. Obviously, a wife and a mom who gave herself away sacrificially. Now, on those tombstones or on the... It's just about inevitable, right? You'll always, it's inescapable. You'll always see it. Somewhere on that tombstone, you're going to see two dates. Two dates. And typically, we see then, in between those dates, a small horizontal dash. And that dash is a symbol. That dash is representing a person's life. Someone lived. You've seen these. 1938 dash 1998. 1972 2018. And that dash is just the right length in light of all eternity. But someone has lived a life. That dash represents life. And so a question this morning arising out of a passage like here in Haggai 1 is a question for you. How are you living your life? How are you living your life in these days? You've heard the saying that life is like a coin, right? It's like a coin. You spend it but you can only spend it once. Haggai is a book taking us back to consider our ways. God has his work, and we're to take stock of what he is doing and see our lives in light of what he's doing. Twice in this passage, friends, twice in it verse 7, consider your ways. Consider your ways. Let's do that. 
We're going to consider our ways in light of his glory. And we're going to consider our ways in light of his presence. In light of his glory, consider your ways. If you're at all familiar with the storyline of the Bible, Genesis, that first Bible book, all the way back to the back, that last Bible God to announce and he aims to promote his own glory. And Haggai himself, bringing that word to this people at this time, captures a bit of that for us. Look at verse 8. He says, go up to the hills and bring the wood and build the house. Why? That I may take pleasure in it. And why? That I may be glorified, says the Lord. We're to consider our ways in light of God's purposes of his work his work, namely, to bring himself glory, that he may be glorified. That little dash of your life, that little dash. Would you say beyond everything else in your world, your life, will it be on your tombstone, he or she gave himself, gave herself for God's goodness, God's pleasure, God's glory. Now, part of considering our ways and parting, part of taking stock of our lives is to trace out, just a little bit, just to trace out how God is about glorifying himself in the scriptures. His glory is in, in his hand about creation. You want to talk about creation and glory? Here it is, Psalm 19. The heavens declare, the heavens declare the glory of God. You move on and talk about his mighty arm of his deeds, his mighty acts. Listen to the book of Exodus. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained honor, glory, gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, over his chariots and the horsemen. In creation, his mighty acts. He's also glorious apart from. and one of dominion and majesty, apart from his mighty works that we know in creation or his mighty works in the story of redemption. You have it in the Gospel of John, John, uh, John 17. And now, O oh my Father, the Lord Jesus is praying, glorify me together with yourself, with what? With the glory which I had with you before the world was. Our God is glorious of himself. Who he is, Father, Son, and Spirit. Apart, apart from revealing himself to us, his glory is all his own. His glory is mighty and majestic. His glory is all about his own presence in the persons of our God, Godhead, the Father, Son, and, Sp and the Spirit. But also the Bible goes on in our tracing these things out, considering our ways, considering our works, considering our lives. There's also glory especially associated with the specific acts of Jesus. At his birth, remember, at his birth, glory to God in the highest. At his transfiguration, we had those, that, that language from the Gospel of Matthew. He was transfigured before him. What? His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as light, glory. Then Jesus went on to the cross. He went on to Calvary's cross, and there he died. He took upon himself in his own body the wrath of God. 
despised of men, rejected of men, enduring in his own body the God, God's wrath, God's righteous anger against us and our sin. But how does the Apostle Paul look back on that? The Apostle Paul will look back in Corinthians and say, this one who was crucified is who? He is the Lord of glory. The Lord of glory. God is glorified, glorified in the cross work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was raised, raised from the dead and sent to his father's right hand. And then Timothy, in the book of Timothy, we he was glory. The specific acts of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are we here for ourselves, not in your life? We're here for the honor and the majesty of God. Are you taking stock of your life, considering your ways? Now let's root it a bit more in this storyline. In Haggai chapter 1, the glory of God is associated with this building a place for God's name. Rebuilding of the temple. Bible teachers will oftentimes refer to it as the second temple. You remember the first temple was Solomon. And of course it's destroyed with the enemy nations coming in. Israel's defiled and so on and so forth. And she's taken in captivity and that, and that temple's destroyed. But now a remnant is, re, is, is coming. And Cyrus, the king of Persia, he gives us the second temple to be built. And that's what you have the focus here on. Look at verse 8 once again. Go to the hills and bring the wood and build the house. Build that temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. But again, why? Why focus on this matter from Haggai of building the temple and the matter of God's glory? Yes, the remnant is coming back. They've been up there in that northeastern part of Babylon. This is Israel back into the land. And in God's goodness is saying, come back. You have this liberty. Cyrus is the instrument. Cyrus is the tool that God uses to send. But what is God doing concerning his glory? He's being faithful to his children. He's gathering his children together that they then might build a place for his dwelling and his glory might be displayed for a specific reason. Listen to Isaiah 50, oh, sorry, 44, Isaiah 44 on this. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. Now watch these words. Who frustrates the signs of the liars and makes fools of the diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins, who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers, who says of Cyrus, he's my shepherd, and he shall fulfill my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid." But I want you to watch these words. Why is God gathering his people, giving her this task to build this dwelling place for him, that his pleasure might be there, and that his glory might be known in the midst of the people? What are we to consider here? 
His glory is associated with turning back liars, making foolish the ways of diviners. It's His glory that would be seen in taking the wise of this age and subduing them and overturning them and conquering them. Why? He's building a place for the nations. He's about gathering a people and having that place of his own dwelling that he might be known throughout all the earth. His purpose is to honor his name and to subdue that there might be blessing. That might be a book title. Subdue to bless. Subdue to bless. Remember Abraham, our father in the faith. Abraham. He's called out of the nations, out of the nation of the Chaldeans, old Why? That the nations might be blessed through him. Under Moses, again, Israel is called out of the nation Egypt, out of the nation of Egypt. Why? That the Egyptians shall know that I'm the Lord. Exodus chapter 7. In the book of Ezekiel, another prophet, my holy name is to my people Israel. And I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore. Oh, that I'm the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Go up to the hills and bring the wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Throughout Scripture, God is glorified in the weakness and frailty of sinful people. He's about telling his story of his lordship over all the earth. And he uses weak congregations like Providence Church. He uses weak church because mighty works of his glorious arm and hand name might be known. That dash, that horizontal etching that represents your life is he and his glory and his work at the center. We can grow weary in building this congregation. We can grow weary in reaching the lost of Houston. We grow weary in prayer and to be given to prayer. We grow weary concerning misplaced misplaced energy, misplaced courage. We, go, we grow weary with misplaced gifting in the for the works of service in the body of Christ. We grow weary at times saying, Lord, where's the fruit? Where is your glory? In chapter 2 of Haggai, the people will be, be, be tempted to be thinking, you know, it's the former days that were glorious, Lord. These are the days of, of little glory. And of course, he's going to correct that in chapter 2. 
Now Jesus comes, and he comes to us in our weakness. He comes to us in our misplaced priorities. He comes to us to us in our weakness, in our sins, our faults, our failures, our transgressions. And he comes to us as the one who himself is the Lord. And he's altogether glorious. And we follow his steps. He told us in John chapter 12, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now in that chapter, chapter 12 of John, there have been some Greeks, some of the nations that have come to ask, and they say they want to see Jesus. They're not Israelites. They're Gentiles. And they've come to see Jesus. And Jesus is that place where he's announcing that he's soon to die. He says, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And the voice came from heaven, I've glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And there's that work of him showing his own glory to give himself unto his Father all in his life, all in his death, all in his resurrection. What is he doing? He's overturning sin. He's conquering the devil. He's bringing forth judgment. Judging the devil, judging sin, conquering it all. And what is he also doing? He's drawing the nations to himself. And that's why he'll conclude with these words. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. God's purposes are for his own honor. Is that little dash in between the dates concerning your life, showing forth, Lord, we're here for you. Especially in our weariness, we're here for you. Especially in our short-sightedness, we're here for you. Especially when we give and we give and we give, we're here for you. In Christ Jesus, we live and we move. And by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we serve. And we trust him for the results. Consider your ways. Consider it in light of his glory. He's building a place for his name. One other area. Take stock of your lives. Consider your ways in light of his presence. You know, if there's any place with this specific task of rebuilding this second temple, dwelling. It's his presence that brings reinforcement. He's near. He's not absent-minded. He is with his children. He is with his people. This passage here in Haggai chapter 1, this passage given to the people of God some uh, 16 years, watch this, 16 years after the people had returned from their captivity. They've been in the land 16 years, Bible teachers tell us. They've had 16 years to be about their business, 16 years to their 
concerns. 16 years to carry out different aspects of responsibility. And yes, again, it was King Cyrus who sent them back, released them, gave them supplies, gave them gifts. And yet we find here in this storyline, they're neglecting God's direct purpose. Listen to these opening words again of Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month and the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has yet not come, has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your own houses while this house lies uh, here in ruins? Now, therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. To minister his people with this direct word from Haggai, has not yet come. It's not yet come to rebuild this house button and say, whose glory is now being promoted, right? <laughs> it's not yet time. I read somewhere this week that, that Old Testament prophets, Old Testament prophets, prophets would be like a pebble in someone's shoe. You know what that's like, right? You get a pebble in your shoe and you, it's discomfort. That's Haggai. He's a pebble in Israel's shoe right now. This discomfort is being noticed. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Lord, believe in your work. It's just not the right time. Again, misplaced priorities, misplaced strength, misplaced time management. Mark, misplaced time management and misplaced about an opportunity, misplaced thinking about an opportunity before us. You see, these circumstances that these folks knew, they had time to resettle in the land. Some, no doubt, needed time to know exactly where to live. Some, no doubt, needed time to know with whom they were going to live, the jobs that they would have. Some had never lived in Jerusalem before. You see, no doubt there are concerns that they have about their own well-being. You yourselves dwell in your paneled houses. God commends hard work. God commends taking care of your household. So what's wrong with paneling your house? <laughs> what's wrong with aiming to protect your wife and children? What's wrong with that steady 40, 50 hours a week job? Idolatry includes making good things ultimate things. ultimate things. More than once, my beloved wife has reminded me, Lord, the church, Mark, the church is not yours. The church is a good thing. But there are times where you live in such a way and you work in such a way that it's the ultimate thing. Your work in the church is the ultimate thing. And she rightly guides she rightly shows care and truth. 
Good things can easily become ultimate things. You see, even in the middle of doing hard work, we're still yet faced with that susceptibility to selfishness. But walk through these scriptures with me just for a few more minutes here. Our God is the God who penetrates the thinking of man. Our God is the God who comes to us in his grace and he ministers to us in that confrontational way, but that confrontational way is to lead us to grace. That his confrontation is grace itself. C.S. Lewis called it a severe mercy. Hardships, trials, puzzling times, deep cares, deep concerns, aiming for responsibility, stewarding those responsibilities that can be hardships. Such things, when we're confronted with such a stewardship, confronted, it's a severe mercy. Look at verse 4 again. Verse 4 is a question. He says here, Is it a time for yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? Questions in the Bible. Questions in the Bible are clothed with mercy. God graciously allows us to breathe. What do I mean by that? He's posing a question to his people. He's giving them a time to hear him, a time to consider, a time to reflect upon their sin, a time to reflect upon their weariness, a time to reflect upon the very you know, manward strength that they've been displaying. What is he doing? He's coming to us with that question to reason with us. That's his mercy. It's like Isaiah chapter 1. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they're like red like crimson, they shall be as white as wool. If you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured. He's reasoning. Haggai is reasoning with the people of God. Is it now the time for you to dwell in paneled houses and to leave this house of the Lord in ruins? And then he gives these four illustrations about mixed up priorities and sinfulness. And their, and their, their finitude. Measures of, you know, there seems to be a, a way that's right unto man. There seems to be a way that man would go that's right unto himself, but in its end leads to destruction. Look at these illustrations here in verse uh, chapter 6. Consider your ways, verse 5. Now look at 6. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have, a fill, have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. He's reasoning with the people of God. And he who earns wages uh, does so to put them into a bag with holes. Yes, there's all kinds of hard work going on, but little harvest. You're, you're eating, but you're not filled. You're eating the wrong things. <laughs> you're clothed, but you cannot keep yourselves warm. You're earning money, but your purse has holes, like sieves. Thus says the Lord, consider your ways. One Bible commentator just simply put the question to us, is there happiness in something found in this creation? Is there happiness for you in something found in this creation, in this world? The Valley of Vision, a Puritan collect that collection of Puritan poems, that Valley of Vision, that's a book. You have just 
simple words here. Be happy in him. Be happy in the Lord. Be happy in him, O my heart, and in nothing but God. For whatever a man trusts in, from that he expects happiness. The most severe depression I've ever gone through in my own life is after I finished a particular event in ministry out in Escondido, California. It's an event not unlike the Athens Conference. My happiness was being found and tied up and found in that event. The event happened, and for the next nine, ten months, torpedoed in severe depression. I was finding my happiness in workaholism, doing my tasks, and not the Lord. I close with what is the answer? It's the presence of God. He's near. He's in control. He is at hand. Look down at verse 12. Zerubbabel, the son of Sheotil, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you. I am with you, declares the Lord. Will we take that risk to go to someone where there's been a falling out and a breach in relationship and Jesus has instructed us, go to your neighbor in private and work it out, the two of you, just alone? Will we take that risk? Will we take the risk of the whole matter of that faithfulness of calling on a neighbor, he or she is sick, he or she has not been in worship for two or three weeks? Will we take that risk and be courageous in realizing in your gifting as the general office of believers, we say, not merely the pastor, not merely an elder, not merely a church leader, but you in that office of believer, I will call on that neighbor. I will just simply call and read a verse or two to him or her to encourage him or her and take that risk. How will we step out in such ways of courage? I am with you. I am with you. For, for the people of God in Haggai's day, it was the building of that house, the temple. God is about building his house, building his people. And it's that mother promise, I am with you, declares the Lord. That was with Moses. I am with you, Moses. I have made man's mouth. Joshua, I am with you, the captain of the Lord of hosts of the army of God. I am with you. With Gideon, taking away those, those hundreds and those thousands down to three, I am with you, Gideon. With David, before that mighty giant, I come to you in the name of the Lord. Remember that story. I am with you. And Jesus this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God is with us. Emmanuel. Our God is with us. Haggai took that promise and he said, I am with you, declares the Lord. 
And the Bible tells us they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts. How are you living your life? Good Shepherd, we have a ministry to Providence Church. Good Shepherd, we have a ministry to Cornerstone. Good Shepherd, we have a ministry for the next church plant in this city. Good Shepherd, we have a ministry that our children and our children's children will be about preaching and teaching and ministries of mercy and God-glorifying worship, building the community of God for His dwelling, His presence. Why? Because He's about subduing the nations and to bring about His blessing, the blessing of the glad tidings of Christ Jesus. May we pray and serve and labor knowing I am, as God says, I am with you. Let's pray.